Take your Bibles this morning. We are in the second to last uh, message on Marriage MD. Uh, this morning is praying together, and I'm going to make a case for couples praying together. And then next week, uh, David and Susan will be here. And David and Susan are going to walk through. They're married 31 years, so they qualify as resident expert old people. And uh, I can say that because they're not in the service. And, uh, but they are going to share. I've asked them off of this series, would you share the three biggest things that you uh, have been positives for you guys as a married and three of the things that have been the hardest? All right. And so even uh, like guys, if we're at men's retreat, that's probably something you want to download, go to the website and listen to, because I guarantee you it will be profound. All right. I know their story and lives well. And so uh, I just encourage you to tap into that if you get a chance. If you want to invite friends, next week would be a great place to invite friends to because it'll register across the board uh, for that. All right. Starting in uh, Colossians 2 this morning. We're going to be talking about praying together, so we probably should do so. Would you join me? Father in heaven, uh, as I've talked uh, over the years, this has been something that you've kind of laid as a theme on my heart. But it's just really easy to come across wrong, and I'm not sure where the sweet spot is, but I would pray you'd keep me in the sweet spot. Don't help me not to overamp or undersell something. Uh, may you find that rhythm where you've been having a conversation with us as a body and my spirit matches that uh, to call us to what we could be in you. And we seek you for that in your name. Amen. All right, we'll start with this verse right here. It's found in Colossians. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Small verse, uh, but I think a key verse, because I know all of us who have tried to be steadfast in prayer, we are easily knocked off course and easily distracted. And so part of the question is, well, where does this big emphasis of prayer come from? Uh, the recent movie War Room, a number of you saw that, right, and went saw that movie, uh, has rekindled kind of the interest in praying for life situations we find ourselves in and, and sort of that spiritual warfare, you know, a prayer closet idea. But the truth is that what the movie is depicting is really nothing new. It's been around for as long as the church has been around. Uh, spiritual warfare and prayer have been going on for ages. It didn't start with us. Okay, so we didn't invent it and we didn't invent prayer. And so all of that has been a living dynamic we have merged into with the ages past. Uh, when I was a brand new Christian, I uh, had the great privilege. I went to this this thing right here. It was called Change the World School of Prayer. It was put on by World Literature Crusade. And uh, Dick Easton, some of you would recognize that name. They're in Colorado to this day. And uh, it was an incredible thing for me as a new believer to go through how deep you could go in prayer and how many layers there were to it of things I had never thought past, uh, you know, three Our Fathers, three Hail Marys, and, you know, that kind of thing in, in my background. And so um, it really changed the way I looked and, and understood prayer. And um, this book is filled with gleanings of wisdom and practice on prayer that are found in the Bible and down through history. And one of the insights it points to is how universal prayer is. If you think about it, everybody prays, okay? Uh, we may pray differently. It may be sporadic, or but under pressure, almost instantaneously, all of us have some kind of prayer. Now, it may be, I hope somebody's up there. I hope somebody's listening, and we call it a wing and a prayer, right? You just chuck it up and hope something good comes out of it, okay? But that's still a prayer. That's still on some level acknowledging 
that there is the possibility of somebody outside myself who could help me in the circumstances I'm now facing. Right? And so prayer, they point out, is really kind of a universal thing. Man, by nature, tends to be a praying being. Uh, And in this, I'd like to quote from you uh, from page 11. You can't see page 11 in the book, but here's... uh, kind of what it, what's inside the book. It says, In teaching people the power and the practice of prayer, we are not venturing into unexplored territory. The testimony of Christians everywhere, from every generation, emphatically declares that prayer works. Preaching on prayer, G. Campbell Morgan. By the way, if you don't know the name G. Campbell Morgan, just look him up on Wikipedia, all right? Astonishing guy. Um, but we, he says this, We base our belief in the possibility of prayer upon the history and experience of man. When science makes experience the universal test of reality, how can men rationally exclude the experience of the saints of all ages in this matter? They tell us that they have asked and had, sought and found, knocked and the door's been opened. In answer to this, critics affirm they were all perfectly sincere in believing this, but they were mistaken. Such a statement is a test of patience to which I am not equal, he says. The noted preacher carefully concludes to be told that not one or two, but hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of human beings, not of one age or temperament or geographical position, but in every age of all temperaments and from every region, through weeks and months and years and decades and centuries and millenniums, have all been deceived is to be asked to believe something far more incredible than anything Christianity affirms to be true. It's a powerful statement about prayer. Now, when it comes to prayer and that sort of thing, um, and I've told you that Pam and I pray together, and we've tried to be very vulnerable during this series up here. Um, One of the things I'm not saying is that I, nor Pam, are the greatest prayers in the world. All right? We have a certain rhythm. We pray a certain way. Um, we've grown in it in the last 20 some years as we've been married and uh, we've by God's grace fortunately been kind of consistent in it um, but uh, I wouldn't set us up as the examples of uh, those who have gone so far you should follow our example also when I'm speaking nor I don't think that a lot of us don't pray I think of a lot of us do pray here that are here this morning I think um, we do but I wholeheartedly believe we, as well as Northview, as a church as a whole, could, should, and need to pray more. All right? It's one of those things you just can't take it far enough, right, kind of thing. And I, I firmly believe that warfare, if you're talking about spiritual warfare, the target, the aim, the direction of what's the intent of it is directly aimed at Christian couples to keep them distracted and to keep them from praying together. And think about when you try to pray together, what happens and how many things discombobulate all in one sequence of things. And how can that all just be coincidence? Okay. I, uh, fully, uh, I want to fully and wholly affirm this statement. This was made by a guy named S.D. Gordon. Again, uh, it's taken from the Change the World School of Prayer pamphlet book that I've got up here. He says, the greatest thing anyone can do for God and man is pray. It is not the only thing, but it is the chief thing. The great people of the earth today are the people who pray. By the way, that's very contrary to how we record history, right? It would be very interesting when God rolls back the veil and says, you want to see how history really looked? 
and watch how prayer shifted things that we never even realized it shifted. I do not mean those who talk about prayer, nor those who say they believe in prayer, nor yet those who can explain about prayer. But I mean those people who actually take the time to pray. And so this morning, and we want to focus on on praying together because we believe it holds the key for the Lord to really be at work among us uh, individually, among us as couples, and also as a church family. So let's go and take a quick look at the model. Jesus had a prayer life, right? It was something that the disciples picked up on very quickly. If you look at Mark chapter 1, it says that rising very early in the morning, and by the way, Jesus had a very full day. And I don't think they had daylight savings time back then, right? So he didn't get an extra hour of sleep. It says, rising up very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And later you find out the disciples go trying to find, like, where did you go? What are you doing? And because of them watching him engage in that practice, they eventually came to him and they said, you know, don't, they didn't ask, teach us to be better disciples. They didn't ask us, give us keys to him. What did they ask? Could you teach us how to pray? And Jesus did. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Okay? I prefer trespasses and trespassing. Right? Deliver us not from evil, or deliver us from evil. Right? So Jesus taught them how to pray. And if you go through the Lord's Prayer, there's, there's pieces there that break open into bigger pieces. But I want to take you to one that isn't uh, so much noted all the time, and that's what's called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus, found in John um, chapter 17, because I think it it targets specifically as couples. Now, if you're a single person here this morning, I'm not excluding you, okay? Trust me, everything I say pertains to you and everything I'll say you should do before you get married. And you should learn these things before you get married and not try to learn them once you're married. Because once you're married, they're much harder to learn. It's way easier, singles, to build a track record with God now than it is once you get married and try to go from zero to 60 all at once. So, yeah, and some of the married people are going, yeah, that's very true. Okay, so, uh, but in the Lord's Prayer, John 17, I'm going to start with verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only. He was talking about his disciples there. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and that I have loved them even as you have loved me. Now this is a profound prayer, and what it sets up is a couple things. It's talking about oneness, something that certainly we understand, long for, find very rarely in this life. And it's also talking about the fact that uh, they, they, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are the model for us of what oneness looks like. This prayer is profound. Matter of fact, it's so profound that most of us pass by it when we read it as a, because when we read it, we go, well, that's impossible, and we just skip on to the next verses. Okay? And thus, we just kind of blow by it. But oneness, unity, same mind, same spirit, where does, can that even exist today? 
Certainly it should exist in the church, but most of us uh, have struggled or uh, struggle with that reality, right? We've been maybe through some painful things or church breakup or that kind of stuff and like, wow, how do you, how do you even stay together, let alone be of the same mind sort of thing? Certainly it should exist in the church, but let me suggest another arena that is organic, uh, covenantal, and based on oneness. Now, give me two things here. All right, here's the two things. Number one, Jesus prayed. Will you give me that? All right, Jesus prayed, therefore we should pray. It's that simple. All right, we should do what the master's done. We should follow in his steps. We should model, he modeled for us what we're supposed to be doing. So Jesus prayed, therefore we should pray. Then secondly, Jesus desired oneness. So we should desire oneness. So oneness should be at the top of the priority when we're thinking together. So those two things together, where does that, this get played out on this planet in a kingdom sense? Where's the place that's resident that God desires for that to happen the most? If you bring both of those elements together, then the wellspring of oneness, and by definition, then prayer should be our marriages. That's where it should happen. That should be the cornerstone place where prayer takes place. We know this verse very well. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what we get hooked on there is we go, yes, one flesh. And so when we think of one flesh, we think of the sexual relationship and go, yes, God's into one flesh. Guys go, amen, right? And we think it's a, it's a rocking deal. But what we don't realize is that when they came together and they became one flesh, Adam and Eve, they didn't have the fall like we do. And so primarily their sexual relationships was powered by their spiritual relationship. And I want to show you how this uh, comes together. Um, This one flesh on a human level is the exact same idea and expression of what Jesus was talking about when he was saying, he and the Father are one. In other words, our oneness, and if you take that to our marriages, our oneness is the greatest possible reflection of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the oneness they experience. The earthly picture mirrors and reflects the heavenly reality. Now, boiled down to its simplest element, they were in unified, they, the Father and Son, Jesus was talking about the Father and Son there, they were in unified relationship together, and they talked to each other about what? About concerns, what excited them, what saddened them, what mattered to them. And this is primarily why, when we come to the marriage relationship, and the one flesh relationship, the sexual side, that sex is primarily spiritual. Because our oneness doesn't come from ourselves, but from God. We make a big mistake thinking marriage comes from us, that somehow man invented it. Man did not invent marriage. God invented marriage. He's the one who created man. He's the one who created woman. He's the one that brought them together and said they were a perfect match, and it was very good. And in that, he was looking at both the spiritual component and the physical component of that being brought together. When we are in communion, and really when you think of a marriage relationship, when you're in communion, that means it's in sync, right? We're simpatico together. We got it rocking. When we're in communion together, we're talking, sharing, conversing. We do that with God. That oneness then is transferred and conveyed to us, which the human expression and reflection of that communion is the sexual relationship. 
Right? That God is brought together. If this is true, then prayer is actually the higher priority than sex and marriage. Although sex is a very high priority, prayer outranks it. Now, where do I pull this idea from? If you'll go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want to talk here about the lesser is set aside for the greater. Let's start with verse 1. Now, concerning matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. Paul wrote that because they were in the middle of persecution themselves. They were planting churches. They felt Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And so why are you dilly-dallying around with that when such important things are happening? Paul was a little one-directional, all right? And so he's saying, but... Because of temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own... Again, sexual immorality, fornication, if you're having sex before you're married. It's adultery if you're having sex with somebody else who's your, not your marriage partner after you're married. Those are the two big. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. We covered this on the message at sex. You can go back over, uh, go to our website, download that message from this series and see what we said about that there. But then he goes on to say this, all right? He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do not deprive one another. We live in a culture that uh, maximizes on depriving each other. I know of a lot of women who said, hey, that, I don't need it anymore. That's your problem. And I say to them, where was that in the having to hold part of your vows? That you have the right to overrule that? Now we say, oh, those terrible women. You know what? I know guys who do that. Guys, you're just too much trouble. I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I'm not connecting to you anymore, so I'm done. Okay? And all kinds of fallout comes out of that. Do you think a couple like that is praying together? Probably not. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement. So Paul says there are times when you could set that aside. What would be a legitimate reason for that? He says the legitimate reason is that you could devote yourselves to, and what's the word there? Prayer, that you could devote yourselves to prayer. Paul says prayer is so important as a couple, it's actually, if you set aside a time to cut off the sexual relationship, pray together, but then once that's done, what do you do? You bring that back together and you come back sexually together. Why? So that Satan may not be able to tempt you because of lack of self-control. That's kind of a a diatribe on our lack of self-control. You know, (laughs) whoopee, thanks, Paul. But, you you know, there's truth to that, right? There's truth to that. In other words, what Paul's saying here is the lesser is set aside for the greater. What does Paul say is the greater? Prayer is the greater intimacy, the greater reality. That intimacy then powers the rest of it. Prayer, think about this. Prayer and the sexual relationship are two different but complementary and important sides of intimacy. If the sexual relationship is the glue that holds our intimacy together, then prayer is the glue that holds our marriages together. Why? Because sex is primarily spiritual. It is not primarily physical. And prayer is the fuel that it was intended to run off. 
Doesn't that make sense that when you pray together as a couple and you bring your spirits together and you go before the Lord, don't you experience a communion and an intimacy that's really phenomenal? And that makes then making love to each other so much easier because you're already in sync. Prayer is the fuel that brings that to the greatest possible expression. It's not porn. I have news for you. Porn destroys all that. When you're doing porn, do you pray? I don't think so. One P is going to rule you, either porn or prayer. And it's not, they don't go together. Why? Because porn says it's all physical. There's nothing but bodies and what bodies can do. And if I can make your body do this or that, then I will find ultimate pleasure. No, it's like drinking salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. It's a black hole you can't crawl out of. What does God say? Pray together. Pray together. You pray together, and something's going to happen that changes your physical relationship. A husband and wife united in heart and spirit by prayer have a lot of fuel for a love relationship. That's what I'm saying. A husband and wife united in prayer have a lot of fuel for a love relationship. All other fuels are a corruption of the original intent. Have you ever noticed, see if this rings true to you, have you ever noticed that the same things that tend to affect your prayer life are the same things that affect your love life? Think about that for a second. Have you ever noticed the stuff that bugs you in your prayer life is the same stuff that bugs you in your prayer life? And vice versa. The same things that tend to affect your love life are the same things that tend to affect your prayer life. That being so, let's just look at a couple hindrances to prayer uh, this morning. What keeps couples from praying together? All right, here's some hindrances to prayer. See if you recognize these. Uh, First one is grievances. Grievance is a real or imagined wrong that is caused for complaint or protest, especially under unfair treatment. A real or imagined wrong that is cause for complaint or protest, especially for unfair treatment. Grievance. Think of grumbling. You ever grumbled in your spirit against your spouse? And dirty, rassafrasin, gunky, right? Praise the Lord. You ever, you ever have grievances that you hold? Now, grievance, if you take care of them quickly, they really they don't stick very well. But if we start to hang on to them, grievances then become grudges. All right? Grudges are a persistent feeling of ill will or resentment resulting from a past insult or injury. In other words, we nurse it. We incubate it. We go over it. We, we run it through our computer and our mind. They did that. And not only did they do that, but I can tell you exactly what they did. I can tell you when they did it. I can tell you the date it happened. I can tell you the exact words they used. And I'm, I hold a grudge against them. Forgive them. Ha! Right? And when you're holding grudges, we call it, in marriage, we call it the argument plus the kitchen sink. Right? Everything comes hurtling at you from the last 10 years, and you're just getting mowed down by a whole truckload of grudges? What does that feel like? Does that help your intimacy? No, not so much. Right? If we don't take care of it on the grievance stage, it becomes holding a grudge. If we don't take care of holding a grudge, it becomes bitterness. Bitterness is a hardened anger, and the key word there is hardened. It's now cement. 
it's not moving anymore. It's a hardened anger or disappointment at being treated unfairly. The key word, resentment. You run into somebody that's bitter and they are so resentful. And you can pick this up sometime when they talk about their spouse. You just pick up, it drips resentment. And often the person will not be able to say it or even articulate or put it into words. They're not only mad at their spouse, but they're mad at God. They are resentful of the person that God gave them as a partner. Now, I find that absolutely hilarious half the time because 90% of all couples that come in, and I've married hundreds of couples, of the couples that come in tell me they have, have to have each other and they've prayed for each other. And I go 30 years later, why are you mad at that God answered your prayer? We don't think about that side of it. Right? Be careful what you pray for, I guess. Right? And then lastly, it ends up in pride. You ever see a couple stuck in pride? Right? I have to be right. I won't admit I'm wrong. I have to win. No, I'm going to win. No, no, this is boiled down. No, okay, we're talking about who's going to take this. I, I will bury you. If it takes me 35 years, I'm going to bury you. If it takes till the kids are out of the house and then I spring the trap, I'm going to bury you. Right? You ever see couples operate? Do couples like that pray together? No, I don't think so. Okay? There's a huge wall that's erected there. Now, I want to highlight another hindrance that ties to these. Uh, and we don't talk it about often enough because we really don't think it's a problem. And this is the problem of idolatry because we really don't think we're idolaters. But this idea of cleaning out the temple, this idea of uh, the dangerous reality of idolatry, I have placed something else in my heart above God or above my marriage. There's something else that I'm playing with. Colossians 3, 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in your nature. What's earthly? Sexual immorality, impurity, uh, impurity we'd call pornography, right? Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. In other words, those things are a symptom of, of idolatry. Why won't we pray with our spouse? Well, is it possible I have allowed something else in my heart that no one else can see that is actually an idol? Now, how does this work? There's thousands of pictures. Let me grab two this morning. I'll grab one for a guy, one for a gal. If this isn't yours, uh, good. The bullet missed you. You can duck and live for another day. All right. But guys, here's how it works. You're out doing yard work or doing something extra for your wife and she comes up and smiles to you in the afternoon and goes, Honey, mm-hmm, yeah. And you're thinking, Wow, this is great. Not only is it a good afternoon, I'm getting something done, but we're going to get some stuff tonight. This is awesome. And, uh, and so you're rocking and rolling, you're smiling, whistling, and there's nothing more than you're thinking about rendezvousing tonight with your wife. And the day goes long and your wife's tired and there's extra things that happen. And so you get in bed together and you pray and she rolls over and clunk. Clunk? What, what happened to, hey, honey? Hey, 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 hey. And you're sitting there and you start to stew. And the voice says to you, is that, that's, oh, that's really honoring. Yeah, she, yeah, you're high on the priority list. I guess not. And then you get mad and you're sitting there and the more she snores, the madder you get. Because you realize that isn't in her universal space at all. And you get mad. All right? If you aren't going to honor me, 
then I'll find somebody who does. And so in your mind, you take and you pick and you craft. It could be an old girlfriend from high school, an old girl from college, former conquest that you've had. It could be somebody that you've seen on radio or TV. It doesn't matter. It's all over there. But you pick somebody and you fashion that person. That person loves you. That person's going to honor you. That person. And so you create fantasies with that person. And after a while, those fantasies become more real than the relationship with your wife. Matter of fact, it's nicer than your wife because they always respond in your imagination. They're never tired. They never sleep. They never snore. And they're always standing there going, hello, honey, I'm here for you. Now, guys, have you ever walked in a Safeway store with seen a gal in a red bikini going, I've waited for you all week. I knew you'd be here. Right? Does that ever happen? No. Why do gals do that? Money. Let's get to the bottom of that. But what's going on with guys? We are in idolatry. What's the symptom? Sexual immorality. All right? But we're in idolatry. And we're crafting an idol that soon starts to own us instead of us being in control of it. Gals, uh, our battle is usually a little different. This may or may not be a battle, but let me try it. You walk into a friend's house. And it's a really nice house. And you walk in, you go, ooh, I'd like those floors. Wow, I'd like those cabinets. Wow, I'd like those countertops. Man, look at the car they drive. And you start comparing what she has to what you have. And going, holy cow. And you start calculating in your mind, when will you get those things? And you realize with your husband, with his job, his career, you're never going to get those things. It wouldn't matter if you both work till you drop dead. That stuff ain't happening. And you suddenly look and go, man, the thought comes to you, I wish I had a husband who could provide for my needs. The kind of things that I deserve. There's the key phrase. And we start getting caught up in covetousness. Gals, this is... Uh, for you guys, a, a whole ball game of things because uh, you look at another woman, you, we covet their hair, we covet their nose, we covet their hips, we covet... Uh, how come they get to have that and I don't have that? Why is their hair curly and my hair straight? Which is hilarious because other people want straight hair and theirs is curly. Right? You can't win for losing. I just settled the whole debate, no hair. Right? <laughs> but... We get caught up in covetousness. What does covetousness do? It creates discontent. It creates resentment. And I start resenting my husband for what he is not able to give me. Unbeknownst to me, I'm also saying that to God. That's your pick? Well, if that's your pick, you're a lousy father too. Because why can't I have that when somebody else gets it? That's covetousness. That's envy. And we get all wrapped up in what I don't have. And it turns into bitterness towards our husband. And that is just as much an idol-making factory, gals, as a guy who's struggling with porn. Okay? You don't hear that. We never talk about that. But it is. What does it do? It creates a huge block in our hearts. Remember, Jesus said this, guys. Jesus had these same concerns. He said, you have heard that I had said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Gals, Jesus also said, don't covet. Coveting 
uh, what others what others have is idolatry. If you look at this then uh, and think about this, why is this such a critical thought for us this morning when it comes to prayer and our marriages? Because if we're caught up in these two things, we're not going to be praying together. And worse, we can be uh, stuck in idolatry. In Ezekiel 14, uh, you can look at it. The elders of Israel come before Ezekiel for prayer. And God says this, he will not allow Ezekiel to pray for them because he says these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set a stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. In other words, Israel's in bad shape. Babylon was coming. Nebuchadnezzar was flattening everything. They came to Ezekiel for prayer. But what they wanted was God to change their circumstances, not to change their heart. And they had their idols in their heart against God. And God goes, you don't want me. You just want your circumstances changed. If we correlate that to the American church, how true would that ring? That most of us want our circumstances changed. We don't want our heart changed. God, you change my circumstances? Okay, me and you maybe talk. Change my heart? No one goes in there. Sorry, no one. No one go there. If these things ring true, and we're not praying with our spouses, then the question that must be asked this morning is this one. Let me say it in as loving a way as I can. How many idolaters do we have in attendance this morning instead of worshipers? The outside looks great, but in the inside there are things erected that are greater than God and have stolen God's place because we haven't taken that oneness seriously. This is a very scary question. Now, I believe in better things for us, but the implications for us as a body of believers and church is huge. For example, when it comes to prayer, how many of us prayed last night for the services this morning? How many sat down and said, Lord God, we want to lift the services up to you and that you'd be at work in the service? We know people are coming all three different services and we can only be at one, so would you be impactful? Would you work in the services tomorrow? God, would your presence be among us, that you would forgive, that you would heal, that we would sense you. My mentor, Jan Hedding, always taught me that church begins on Saturday night. And he said it this way. He said, Steve, anything important in life you prepare for. He said, if, if there's something big, you practice, you rehearse before it comes and you set it up. And he says, so always church always starts on Saturday night. He says, Saturday night is when it starts to roll out and you start preparing to make sure, especially if you're the pastor, make sure your heart's right before you roll into Sunday morning. He said, you can't just do it. Gals, this would make total sense for you. How many of you showed up at your wedding and had planned nothing? Just said, let's hope it turns out. (laughs) Wee! Well, that'd be trusting your husband on a level you hadn't thought of, right? (laughs) Guys, if there's an important thing at, at work, you just walk in. No, no, all of us know you have to prep. But how many of us actually prep for Sunday morning? How many of us just come, walk in, punch our card, gave God his bone, walk out, and it wasn't very much, preacher ain't that good, didn't sense God at all, kind of a lame thing, but, you know, at least we get to watch the Seahawks this afternoon. Well, they're tomorrow night, but. And we come and sit as consumers. We're not engaged, we're not praying together about it. We're not even asking. I bet you there were a lot of prayers yesterday for the Huskies and Cougars. 
were their prayers to Jesus and for Jesus and his kingdom and his church. If we don't pray like that, will there be any power available or revealed to us? Now, that would evoke the question, all right, you've convinced me I need to pray with my spouse. What do we do? Let me give you a couple things. How to pray together. Basic ABCs. Here you go. Number one, find a time in your schedule that works for the both of you. That is way more difficult than you think. If you think that's going to just happen, you are sadly delusional. All right? You have to work at it. You have to find times with our busy schedules. Uh, you have to do it. Secondly, it goes right along with it. Find a place that's free from distractions. Ah! A lot of you, we've told you that we pray at night and you think, wow, how did you come to that? It was very brilliant. We had four kids. Tell me a time when, you're, when your schedules both work for you and there's no distraction with four kids. The only time we had, we're exhausted. We've blown through the day. We've, she's had the kids. I've had church. We've we both had crisis. And the only time we had is when they were actually down. And contrary to popular opinion, it got worse when they got older because they wanted to stay up. Right? And so the only time we could actually pray is when we actually got in bed together and it wasn't so spiritual. We just said this is the only time our schedules were actually together and there's no distraction. So Pam and I pray almost every night uh, together with each other when we go to bed because that's the rhythm and routine that God set up for. That may not be your rhythm or routine. That may not work for you at all. But what will work? There's no couple that doesn't have a time where you can't find together and a time that's free from distractions. You do have to work at it, though. You have to fight for it. Third thing, find a prayer track that works for the both of you. Uh, for example, there's the acronym ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. What's good about that? Remind yourself who God is. Confess, repentance is always a big part of prayer. Thanksgiving, right? Thank you, God, for the things you've given in supplication. Here's the needs. Notice the needs come last. There's a bunch of prep work before the needs come. It's not just walk in, dump your grocery cart of needs to God. I hope you check a couple of these off anyways and walk back out and say, uh, we'll see what he does. No, it's, it's a relationship. Develop a prayer track that works for you. Number four, instead of just talking, learn to listen. There's something profound about being a couple and just being silent together and giving your attention to God and seeing if he speaks and seeing if you hear. He does talk, you know, but he's not going to overjump our chatter. And so we have to learn to be silent together with him. Number five, make sure both of you are reading from his word. And the reason for that is often when God speaks, he'll speak out of the word. God kind of knows his word really well and he knows where to pick things and he knows where to pick promises from and he knows what to underline and what to accentuate. And if you're in the word, both of you, he can pull. And you don't even have to be in the same place. If she's doing a Bible study and you're reading somewhere else, you can come together and say, hey, what have you been getting out of your reading lately? Here's what's been standing out to me or emphasized to me. That's really helpful because sometimes what God's emphasizing for your spouse is something that you need to hear. And then number five, here's a key one, or number six, ask God to help you learn how to pray better. A great prayer is, dear God, we aren't really good at this prayer thing. Could you help us? Could we get better? We'd like to know you better and we'd like to be better together. 
In other words, have a better conversation with them. I'm going to ask the servers for communion if you'd come forward now and, and begin to serve. Thank you so much for doing that. We're going to come into communion. I want to give you some positives, all right? This morning, room has this little shell shock feel to it. So let's go some positives. If you were to pray together, what would be some benefits of you as a couple? Okay, now understand single people again. If you're single, it's really wise to learn how to pray well before you get married. Because then you bring something to the table already. But here's some positive benefits. Number one, your home will be protected. Do you realize that prayer covers your home? And that when you pray, it creates what we call propitiation. Uh, In the Northwest, we'd understand it as an umbrella, a covering from the elements. But this is a spiritual covering from spiritual elements. And when you pray together, you provide tremendous protection for your home and for your children and for your marriage. And it makes a big difference uh, in how your family operates. Secondly, your love for the Lord and each other will grow. I have news for you. After seven years, after 15 years, after 20 years, after 25 years, you have not tapped everything to know about your spouse. You haven't even tapped everything to know about you. Right? God reveals us to ourselves as we get older. He does also for our spouse. Likewise, for your partner. You, you get the chance for that love to grow. Number three, the ministry of Jesus will be able to move forward both in your family and the church. How much more powerful would the church be if couples were praying for the life of the church? And we saw it as engagement, all hands on deck. We're all participants instead of we're all spectators. Makes that much of a difference. I'd appreciate it a lot. Number four. The Holy Spirit will help you overcome and die to your fleshly nature. There are things that I talked about this morning that have to die. We know they have to die. Most of the time we want to pet. Okay? Take our sin, put it in our pocket, pet it. Hurt us. No, it really will. And it really does and it really has. Can't pet it. And then number five, you will actually see answers to prayer. When you humble yourselves, you start praying together, you'll actually see answers to prayer. You ever had that frustrated feeling, why is God answering all their prayers and I never hear from them? There's things that have to be overcome for that to happen. When we come to communion this morning, you know, communion means synchronized, right? Were the disciples synchronized with Jesus when they had the Last Supper? No, right? But he had a picture of it. He said, look, later on you're going to remember what this stands for and it's going to be really impactful. And they did. But one of the things of communion was that you have to get rid of idols. So what I'd like this morning is, would you just bow your head and and be alone in your own space? Is there anybody this morning that recognized, hey, I've got an idol in my heart? There's something that's between me and God that I've created, erected, it's something I'm playing with. Yours may not be anywhere close to the two things I brought up, but the Holy Spirit has bumped something and you recognize it. Lay that at the foot of the altar first before we come to communion. Spend time with God right now.
Jesus knew they hadn't gotten it, but he knew later they would. He said, hey, guys, this is my body. Remember what it costs for us to have communion together. Remember what it costs for us to be in relationship together. Always value that the highest. He said, eat this in memory of me. And he took the cup. So this is a symbol of my blood, which is going to be shed for you. It covers all your sins. This morning, because of the blood of Jesus, if you ask him, all your sins can be covered. He said, that's an incredible relationship. He said, drink this in memory of me. The goal is not to make us feel beat up this morning. The goal was to be accurate. Because there's a great need for the church to arise in prayer and there's a great need for Christian couples to arise in prayer. We're going to sing a song that may encourage you because although we may stumble and we're not always that faithful, God is. And this morning we want to reflect back that it's God who will help us be faithful in all this, not ourselves. So would you stand and let's worship Him this morning.